He got in the lift and he tried to size me, you know. You know, he's not someone just hovers no. height. You were in the lift, did that uh, happen? There's no one there, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I've <laughs> done my research. No, it's fine. It takes two minutes. No, no, you can get two black like... men. Just <laughs> me. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Black in a Box, the world is told by black faces in white spaces. I am Angelo, I'm going to be uh, running the point like Jeremy Sohan today, so I got two Victor Wembanyamas, I'm going to just be passing the ball off. What, are you going to keep missing? <laughs> All right. <laughs> 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 He's the worst point guard in the league, bro. Yeah, but look, look. Uh, we are here with Dom. Yes, How are you doing? I'm not too bad, man. Not too bad. First have... garden of the year. Of the year? Of the year, man. Uh, Dan sends his apologies. He watched one Will Smith video. It was Miami. He's like, i got to get there. Uh, Alana sends her apologies. She's helping people stay fit. But we tagged in a couple of guests. It's a podcast crossover collaboration <laughs> two different podcast hosts if you're not signed up to them if you're not listening you have got to start listening to tales from the plantation he's really coming for dan's job right now he's coming for dan's job right now <laughs> sorry tunde i got in the way of your intro <laughs> uh, but we are joined by tunde the host of of tales from the plantation podcast and we will be joined by the founder and host of the Dope Like Dads podcast. I'm just going to call him Big Marv until he tells Big me Big Marv. Um, <laughs> so I know you've done it a million times, but I'd love just for the audience just to kind of get the background of Dope Like Dads. Yeah. Um, cool. No, just come hard though, man. Like, come hard. Okay. You can, you can open open the other page. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we found these new. But not the page that we started. <laughs> <laughs> so d don't open the Rick Ross page? No. Wow. <laughs> wow. No, we were just talking about how in 2024, kind of TikTok is settling all old old scores and Rick Ross is catching heat for his lyrics in uh, in Again. Again, this yeah. is what I said. He was appropriately beaten at the time, the first to be time. fair. It was one of the early cancellings, but he didn't cancel. No, he was, he was, was temporary, wasn't Does it? Does anyone get cancelled? I mean, if we... You, you, you might lose some shit, that's, and that's yeah, enough. Yeah, you, you, you may lose a sponsorship or two. Yeah, as Dave Chappelle says, you're going to take my shoes away. So. <laughs> 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 what did you think to Have you seen his latest one? I watch every single thing he does. I just, yeah, I, think, I just want to know what clever way he's going to represent the same shit. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember that early one where he's like, uh, people often ask me what's better, Coke and Pepsi. Truth is, can't taste the difference. But yeah, Pepsi paid me most recently, so that one. better. Yeah, there yeah. we go. That's that's his last three specials. That that and. Yeah. Uh, uh, where's Ja Rule? Like, I need to. <laughs> yeah. We said yeah. that the last time. I always wanted to clip that for the Beyonce thing that we were talking about. Oh, like, I caught it. Where's Ja? Where's... <laughs> who gives a fuck what Ja? Yeah. I ain't trying to dance. I'm scared of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he has some of the best conceptual. I think I think he's, I think, to be honest, him and Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is also cancelled. Louis C.K. is my second favorite comedian of yeah. all time. I watch his clips and I'm like, I didn't know you were going mm. there. Yeah. And it, and it's not always just like Ricky Gervais, which is just to antagonize. Um, it's clever. Yeah. So I'm a, he's out of everyone that's cancelled. He's the one that annoys me the most. So the the thing is though is that, and I thought 
I mean, are we, we rolling, by the way? I just want to know. Yeah, 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 we, we, rolling. we stay rolling. Well, listen, um, man. But well. we, we've talked about Dave Chappelle and Louis, well, not so much Louis C.K., but we talked about Dave Chappelle on here so much. My name is Dave, Dave Chappelle is a genius in his lane. Mm-hmm. If, you take, the, goat, if you take the topic of race, he has done things with race that I think, and you know, my background is kind of like university. University scholars weren't thinking of race the way that he yeah. did. And like the how old is 15 really? That's, that, is, is, that is his number one, yeah. is, by the way. Yeah. Not by far. Yeah. It's brilliant. And 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 the way that he broke down the who gets to be a child essentially. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but can you can you contextualize it for the room though? Because I feel like the room needs to know so they come with us on how good that is and go see. So it yeah, out. okay. So he starts that he he's talking about R. Kelly. Yeah. And R. Kelly, um f- before he kind this of This is back got, in the noughties. Before well, yeah. before he got cancelled this time, he <laughs> was catching heat. Um uh, R. Kelly on uh, R. Kelly, Dave Chappelle on the Chappelle Show um, had this very famous sketch where he did a song called "Piss on Piss You." On you. Mm. Uh, so he he was well aware. R. Kelly uh, was on camera urinating on a teenage girl, and uh, Chappelle introduces the clip, kind of being like, "So many people saying, oh my God, she's fifteen, she's 15. and he says, "I want to ask the question: How old is fifteen, really?" and the great comedians will always ask something that seems like it's got a really obvious answer. Mm. And he goes on to tell this case, uh, tell this story about uh, a young uh, white girl who was abducted. And it turned out that she was a few miles from her house, but the whole country was up in arms. Where was this woman? Why was this woman? And he was kind of like, why don't you just, you know, walk home? Mm. Um, (laughs) And then he contrasts this story with a young black kid who was do, play, doing wrestling with his friend mm. and they did a wrestling move and he ended up accidentally killing his friend and his friend got life. And the punchline is, if you think it's okay to give a 15 year old life, then it should be okay to piss on him. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's even funny when you know what the punchline is. Even when you know yeah, what yeah. the punchline is, because it, it does, it makes you feel, and the best comedians will always do that. They'll take a position, that, a moral position, mm-hmm. where everybody accepts it and go, but hold on, there's another way to think about it. So, so, where, so where has comedy gone wrong? I feel like in recent years, there's more passion in saying anti-woke things than there is to actually telling jokes. So I would disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I don't think comedy's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that, ba- so, and I've said this on the pod, Dave Chappelle in 2004 was on the cutting edge. The the, the joke, like he left the Chappelle show because people, as he said, he felt that the laughs he was getting weren't the right laughs and he didn't feel that he was kind of making the same, the points, the points that he was trying to make weren't being were being lost in service of comedy. And he talks about the Pixie sketch where he thought people were laughing at the wrong thing. So he was absolutely on the cutting edge and he li- he left comedy for, for 10 years. And I think that what he did is he spawned this generation of young comedians who were like, I don't have to start from this same place mm. of comedy. And that I can take risk and I can get into subcultures and I can be super, super niche. And the thing is, is when Dave left, he was an expert on the topics that he talked about. Never forget that one of the first sketches that he aired on his show was the uh, black white supremacist. Do you know how much of a risk that is? But he knew the topic of race. His family are an educated family. They they work in, his mum certainly works in academia. She knows. So where are we now then? Because I watched the Ricky Gervais special and I felt like for large parts, it wasn't just jokes. It was, I want to protect my right 
to say things about these things. It wasn't to tell me a joke. So the thing is, I, I live in the in the comedy space in terms, of, so I used to write for comedians. I done some comedy work myself. I'm not looking at Ricky Gervais, Louis CK, Dave Chappelle. There are other, there are younger, fresh comedians. I think the, I think the best comedian working right now is Michelle Wolf. Michelle Wolf um, has got two stand-up specials. Is this lady that was always, I'm trying to think. I, I can see her face. She's got. She, like, did, she's the did the correspondence in. Uh, she did the correspondence. Very, very yeah, light. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so, and the thing is, she, I remember when all the Louis C.K. stuff and all of this stuff, you can't say anything, and these comedians were they're kind of saying, "Oh, you can't joke about anything." In her first Netflix special, she trigger warning. She opens up talking for 15 minutes about rape. But it's about rape in the animal kingdom, in the animal kingdom. And she talks about how everybody considers otters to be really cute, but these are like the, the rapists of the animal world. And on the meta level, what she's doing is going, well, you, you can absolutely talk about anything. You can absolutely talk about anything. Can anyone talk about anything though? Anybody can talk about anything if it's funny. Yeah. And I'm the thing is obviously funny is subjective, but it's that thing of look to your audience. If everybody in your audience looks exactly the same and they're all laughing at the same thing, it might just be that your comedy's just for that room. Bernard Manning was was very funny for his rooms. He was uh, extremely funny for his rooms. Um, but uh, like, bring bring bring, <laughs> bring your act bring your act to Brixton in the nineties. It's not gonna go the same. There's two, there's, yeah, but there's he was still heavily problematic all the way up into the nineties, and I think is it Sarah yeah. Burton who was the one that called him out on the show and basically got him to officially say out loud that I am a racist. Yeah, Carolina Hearn. Yeah, Carolina Hearn, yeah, so. yeah. Um, and I feel like when, <laughs> once he said that, he doesn't exist in the same realm anymore. Like, th But this is the whole point, is that it took him that long to say he was a racist. He's been a working comic in clubs for 40 years. Or but whatever. he was a working comic until he died. He was working comic long after that. Yeah, but at what scale? So when we talk about being cancelled, cancelled isn't necessarily means you die and you don't have a job and you've got to hide in your house. It means you don't get to hold the same space in society that you do because you're harmful. So when I look at these new, com these even the new comedians, that other guy who was on... Uh, Matt Rife? Matt Rife. SNL, yeah, him. Yeah. He's just decided that he's gone full on alt-right, all, all Hugging, so like, I don't even get why you've gone that far. It's a grift. Yeah, it's a grift. It yeah. There's a yeah, lot of this, this. So this is what I'm saying. So, so uh, for me, I feel like what it feels like is it's an easy way to be lazy because if you can't be funny in the times, you're not funny to me. Yeah. Like the times evolve. There are times where you can make jokes about particular things, and there's times where it's like actually that, upon reflection, isn't okay. Can if you can't survive in that then for me, you don't stand up as the best. There's two things, that's what Cat Williams said. Because mm -hmm. he was asked about jokes that he used to say, and he's like, well, if the time's change, then I'll stop making those jokes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, and again, it's that thing of being able to adapt. I still think the greatest stand-up in terms of for its moment and its time is, is Delirious by Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it's absolutely, for 1982, is a mm -hmm. perfect, perfect, perfect stand-up. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you take three minutes out of that show, you could still run it in its entirety today. But there is there is a bit that would now obviously be, be considered homophobic. But I guarantee you, if Eddie Murphy was writing that today, he wouldn't write it he that way. And it's no, not because no, he's being no, censoring We're talking himself. about different things. We're talking about com comedy that's timeless. And anything that happened in the 90s, 2000s, will have things in there that don't necessarily hold up today. But can still be what timeless, I'm talking though. about is, you no, know, is that absolutely. And I think all of them are, even Richard Pryor all the way up. If you've done a, an amazing hour, Bigger and Blacker has stuff in it. It's an amazing hour. Hmm. What I'm saying now is people are just doing sets saying fuck you to wokeism. That's not a set. 
So it's like it's like an hour of them just rejecting the idea that you have to consider anybody else's awareness, feelings, and lived experience in your comedy set, and that's meant to be funny. And so, it's weird. So can I? So my my work is inclusion. So DEI mm. is kind of my area. Oh, welcome, welcome to my industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, trying to trying to listen to Ricky Gervais's latest one, trying to force myself to listen to. Um, Dave Chappelle's latest one that he split into three. Um, <laughs> just the same. It's the same set, just over and over again. His first five minutes of his new one was funny, though. It was like it was like it, it's just a little glimmer to show you that he can, but he won't. Yeah, it's a it's a play, He's, and, and that becomes funny because it's not actually a joke. It's just a play on mm. a concept that we all were leaning in, ready for him to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't really do it. Properly. But I get you. Go on. Sorry, but I think, but I think the challenge for me is that comedy has moved into the same space that social media and discourse in general has moved into. Mm. We don't do middle ground anymore. Middle ground doesn't sell. Middle ground isn't popular. You're not going to go viral with middle ground. And what we've seen, particularly with these Netflix specials, is that TV does not do average. Mm. So you have to be extreme. You have to do extremely well. And the only way to do that is either to be bang on 100% with all of your jokes, which is a risk and difficult to do, or you have to be so far to one side or the other that you get people angry. And that for me is what- How do you generate a discourse, isn't it? I think that's no, all no, it is. No, no, the, the, the problem is, is that people are making an hour a year. Some people are trying to make two to three a year mm. and, and it's a money grab. So in that filler of content where half of that show will be gone is now becoming a part of that hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to sit through your B-Tech level attempt at comedy. <laughs> and I don't particularly have any desires for it. Like I just, I, I don't I don't even, like yes, yes I'm in DI, yes I care about people's feelings, but I think there are ways that you can do it where it is funny and people can laugh at themselves a little bit, like they're yeah. involved in the joke. When it's just like you're trans, why should you exist? <laughs> it's like, well, this is a bit. I don't. I don't need this in my. It's become profitable day. to be lazy, though, isn't it? And this, this is it for me. I think it's, it's not just on that side. So we feel the offense when it's that side. Mm. The other side for me is the, the comedians who try too hard to be overly left and over. I hate to use the word, but overly like, don't do it. like. Woke in air, woke in air quotes. <laughs> no, no. The, the reason, the reason why I say it, right, is the because they recognise that there is going to be a level of outrage triggered from the right, and that's not the far right exclusively. But so basically, you're saying right. jokes laughing at the right wing people mocking trans people is now too much. No, but you, so what I'm saying is that there is a structure to it. It's a mirrored structure because some of those aren't funny either. Yeah, but they only become possible because what we're not talking about is comedy is a part of the artistic discourse of a time. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about a mirror, there's albums, there's films, there's TV shows, there's comedy hours. Yeah. So if a comedy hour, it then becomes about trans rights, for example, you will always find a mirror in that. But they wouldn't, yeah. the left version of it wouldn't need to exist if but, those people didn't actually exist. It didn't start off as in like, oh, Black Lives Matter, so I've got some cool black jokes and I've got some nice, clever... It, it started off as a response to the people because we were like, why is this meaning so much to you? But I think it can still be done well. Like, for example, right, we talk we talk about some of the... Let's use Cat Williams as an example, right? Mm. He does that right mix where he's not completely the most political, cor- 
politically correct comedian, but he does evolve his stuff. He does actually take time to listen, reflect, update, evolve his content. There are some comedians who are just leaning into, I recognize that people will support me purely because I have leaned heavily into a particular yeah, identity. Those, those are the B-Tech comedians we're talking about. If you're, if you're an unknown B-Tech comedian and you think coming in will get you an audience by going anti-right wing, yeah. then cool, you might get some audience, but you won't be here in five years and no one's going to follow you with much intensity. You might get a moment, but the, the reason why they're important is for the tonal balance that's why they're, that's the context for their existence. It's not their, how good they are as a comedian and it won't work. The same way coming in and just being provocatively right wing mm -hmm. won't work because at the end of it, we just want to be entertained. And at some point you'll get it wrong. Yeah. Because you don't, before you can destroy a concept like that, you have to, in, through comedy, you have to understand it. Correct. And as Dave Chappelle, who is a black man, who's gone through mental health, whatever he's gone through, mm -hmm. he understands certain values. So when he talks about white women coming to him and talking about misogyny, he's like, well, I'm black. I've had experiences yeah. that you would never understand as a white woman. And when Bill Burr turns around and he's like, the way white women have like swung the Gucci booted feet of defense <laughs> of oppression, like that's a really apt response to the truth of what really goes on. And I feel that like that then becomes funny and honest. But this is the thing. And this is this is where, this is my, so my my comedy inspiration is Patrice O'Neill. He died in 2011. Yeah, 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 I think yeah, he's the greatest comedian. I was just that, introducing him to you. Yeah, ever I, I, existed. Been, yeah. Um, and he always says, I try and start from a place of being funny. And the problem with a lot of these new comics is they're not actually funny. They're not trying to be funny. And 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 a lot of their grift is, you can't make jokes about George Floyd. You can't make jokes about Black Lives Matter. Well, I make jokes about George Floyd. I made jokes about Black Lives Matter and people laughed. I made a joke a couple of weeks after George Floyd died when it murdered. was murdered. I apologize. No, <laughs> terminology is important. When George Floyd was murdered, I was doing a I was doing a Boris Johnson character. I could do the Boris Johnson accent. And I, and I said that, as Boris Johnson, I said, you know, what happened over there was absolutely awful. And if it happened over here, there would, of course, be an inquiry to find out what that ruffian's neck did to that poor police officer's knee. Now, that joke works because we all understand, first of all, it's a black guy making that joke. Second of all, we know that that is absolutely, before the advent of cameras, what happened. That, you know, this guy's neck really attacked this police officer's knee for like nine minutes. But doesn't it work because you're a black guy playing an oppressive white guy? talking about an oppression of an act of another black guy by there, another white guy. There, so it works levels. because it's in that it's not as direct as you being a white comedian making fun of that in that particular way. So it allows you a disconnect between you, the person who's delivering the joke and the situation. So I, I think obviously that within, within the economy of funny, absolutely there's license to play with very sensitive subjects and it's always been the case. But it has to, as you say, be clever and it has to actually be a joke. Yes. Mm. If you just say truths that you feel that are oppressive or minimizing in a funny way, that's not a joke anymore. No, go to Hyde Park Corner if you want yeah, to do that. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and this, but this, this was always my thing. When I was doing that, I would always, because there was so, because people, everybody turns into an expert when they're your friend and you start kind of having a little moment. They're like, you should, you should do a joke about this. And it's like, well, where's the funny in that? Mm -hmm. Where is the funny in that? I just want you to say stuff. And this is it. So it's like, it's because the, the reason a black person doing Boris Johnson works so well is because if, 
Boris Johnson was black, he would still be famous, but he would be used as an example of why black men ain't shit. He would. He wouldn't. He he, he, he don't. Exist. He don't know. He don't know how many kids he's got. He, he don't know how many baby mamas he got. He wouldn't exist. This, and this is this is. But <laughs> this is be, the point. Let's be authentic. He would not exist. But but so but the thing is though is like because and there was that disconnect. Who's who's this big black guy with dreads making jokes about mm. baby mamas? You know, like the, the I, uh, like there was a joke that I wrote where it was like you remember when we were stockpiling toilet paper and I kind of said you know been asked a lot of questions about stockpiling but I want to say happy because it was around happy mother, mother's day I just want to say happy mother's day and in particular happy mother's day to all the um single mothers that I've been stockpiling and and, and again it works because it, the first thing that you think of as a black person as a black guy and we and I've got the statistics and I know you know the statistics because this is the space that you work in is that the perception is black guys are just out here kind of baby mamas and every every black child ever doesn't know who their dad is. So when you have a black guy, and also I've got this accent, and this accent serves, and I turn this accent up if I have an encounter with the police, by the way, you think I sound posh now. You, officer, I'm sure there's, you know, small, but the, the reason that com comedians, the, the stuff that I was doing worked was because I played with the perception of what white people in this country, because most black people, I was like, yeah, obviously I get, I get that, but white people were like, this is this is this is some new. It was like when Nando's came out, and they were like, "Oh my god, this is this <laughs> is the most amazing." Here's <laughs> the Nando's of comedy. That's the sense. If you knew how I felt about Nando's, you would know how funny that is. I despise it, but but so to, I think to to answer your question, the the problem with a lot of the comedians is that they're not even trying to be funny anymore because people will you can be controversial and people will give you a chance. It's a but are you funny? Is it actually funny? And and like a lot of people talk about punching up versus punching out. It's not about just it's are you funny? funny? And the thing is that is one of the most subjective things. It's like, can you make the room that you're in, can you hold it? Can you make it laugh? Can you do that? And that's why a lot of the guys that go famous off of like TikTok, they don't go famous off their act, they go famous off of their crowd work. Mm -hmm. Because you like you can be if you if you can make a group in like Boise, Idaho laugh, and then you can go to the south side of Chicago and make them laugh, that's when the execs go, actually, well, this guy can can hold an audience. Because Netflix is a Big space, and when I worked with them, you're, like, it's, you're not just making jokes for South London. You're making jokes for Australia. You're making mm. jokes for the US. It can be accessed everywhere, and a lot of these guys aren't funny. They've just had a couple of clips go, and I'm talking specifically about guys like Matt Rife. They had a couple of clips go viral because of their crowd work, and nobody at Netflix went, "Is there, have they actually got a tight half an hour? Have they actually got? Have they got? Has he got five? But it's all transactional, though, isn't it, for Netflix? It's what makes money now. Oh, of course it is. Like they, they've put up some steaming hunks of crap. And, and cancelled some gold. Yeah, yeah because, because again, like, when we think of the great films that we love, a lot of them didn't make money. I always say Widows is one of the best films that I've seen over the last 10 years. I understand why no... Female heist? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Steve McQueen female heist movie. I think it's brilliant. But... With Lupita. No, it's with uh, Viola Davis and uh, Elizabeth Debicki. I always and think that you, you think a bit too highly about this film, man. I think I think I think I think it's stunning. I think it's absolutely stunning. They're your friend. Did they That's pay what you? I'm thinking. <laughs> but my point is, though, is that doesn't matter how I think about it. It didn't make money. So even if it's kind of critically acclaimed, critically acclaimed doesn't pay the bills. Mm. Uh, Actually, this is a good point because I was listening to one of your podcasts and you were talking about Fela Kuti, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like the long, drawn out, amazing music, but how we don't really get anything like that because yeah, where yeah. is the appetite to make music like that anymore? Because well, because I think the music became an objective rather than an expression. Mm -hmm. And I think obviously if you're trying to 
chart, if you're trying to sell things, tickets and tours, people wouldn't even consider. Like if you think about the Fela Kuti band, it's yeah. financially impractical. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about Bob Marley's band, it's again, financially impractical. Yeah. Like he had to be sold as a rock band, go to white audiences to justify the cost of his mm-hmm. full band when he started going um, with the Wailers and the I3s. But like, I, I think um, we've lost that. We've, yeah, we've lost time. that. And we've, we've even even the space it takes to have 15 people come together and then mm-hmm. someone just go chick, chick, and be like, oh, I like that. Keep that and do mm-hmm. that again. And then like that's that time, that space and economy we don't even have. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're doing this around our other things. Yeah. yeah. And we don't even get if we had a luxury to sit here all day and just shoot the breeze, watch content, shoot the breeze. Mm-hmm. We would have amazing content and hours and, and episodes. But that that's a luxury we just don't have in this in this market. So I you know, I when I watched the fella thing, for me it just felt authentic expression. Yeah. Mm. I didn't think about it as songs. I just thought about it as music, this is a feelings. Yeah. It was like a church sermon mm-hmm. for some of them. And they were like forty minutes long. Yeah. So that's for a me it's a very powerful yeah, that's a very powerful yeah. thing for me. And it made me think about how I wanna create. And I wanna mm. create in a, an environment where it's not so time specific that I feel I don't get to say everything I feel I want to say, or yeah. I don't get to visualize what I want to visualize in the right way. I'm rushed. And that's a massive part of the kind of art commerce balance. Yeah, I feel that completely. And you're going to be tight about this. The Salt Show, Salt, the um, UK Collective, Cleo Salt, Inflow. Mm-hmm. I was there last year. And I think about the audience's reaction when the tickets were announced. 100 pounds per ticket, everyone yeah, lost their mind, right? You say audience, you mean Twitter? Twitter, basically, yeah. yeah. Twitter's an audience. It's a real place. It it's is. a room. It's a room in the in the universe. Mm. Yeah, but I think I, I think the way I look at it is, it's a very small room, and we forget how many different rooms there but are. But this this is it. It's a small room. Yeah, because five hundred Twitter. There's black Twitter. There's yeah. like Desi Twitter. There's a lot of Twitters, man. There's baguette Twitter. People lost baguette their Twitter. minds, man. When this got when this got released, people lost their minds. Yeah. I think that I will go to my grave saying that's one of the best experiences I've had. And Unbelievable, you know. right? Because. They were able to invest the money and have hundreds of different artists involved there, not just musicians, creative directors, unbelievable performance, unbelievable experience. Yet people didn't want to pay that money because of what? No, they did want to pay it. They just complained. Because yeah, everybody, because it sure. sold out. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so, so it, w- it wasn't the money. It's the story of what the money means. Look, I, I think if you're Salt and you're going up against the WizKid concert, which had 10,000 seats, which they couldn't sell and they were trying mm. to hand them out, an hour before, yeah. like there's a fundamental reason why that needs to be a hundred pounds. Someone has to create value back in art, especially music. Yeah, It has been completely stripped down to the cheapest art form out of all the art form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can get more money doing anything else than you can do from releasing an album. Yeah, And so I think it's really important that they exist. And I think it's really important that other people follow. 100%. Because you don't actually need to sell a million to even have enough money mm-hmm. to survive for the year. You could actually be able to sell a thousand, five hundred, and like if your pricing is right and it matches your audience and the care. I think that's something that Ryan Leslie talked. I had a very fortunate chance to meet Ryan Leslie. Uh, he did Sunday Show many years ago, and I had a chance with his team and him to sit and just listen to him talk about his business model. Mm. And he said he went gold and made no money, and then he sold thirty thousand and he made something like a million something. So his whole thing was have a very hyper personalized data set of his audit of his fans and he went and did a uh, a show in ireland um when he did a show in ireland for 300 people and made 120,000 us dollars he wouldn't have made that 
on that ratio in any other way, but they were prepared to spend so much more money for his tickets compared to what he would do if he went through Live Nation and did it yeah, their yeah, way. Yeah. So it's just about who's going to turn it on their heads. And I, like a part of me, you know, I have that rebellious nature where I want to build things that say, fuck you a little bit to how it should be done and just do it. I'd rather do it with less people, but do it better and more sustainable yeah. and more fun. Um, I wanted to kind of come back. You talk, you talking about with uh, Fela, uh, Fela Kuti and how it made you consider the art that, uh, the, the, the work that, uh, and art that you want to put out. And you're now kind of going more and more into the TV space. You've got the GM, GMB um, gig. And what I find really interesting is how that then makes its way out into the world because uh, I was looking at a news article and they're, they're, it's, it's kind of um, click farms where it's kind of, you know, you have the two faces and there was uh, there was a uh, segment that you had done where uh, you were talking about Keir Starmer's plan to um, have lessons on for boys to respect women. But it took what had been quite a nuanced debate and just turned it into an either or thing. How do you feel about the reception or the interpretation of your work where you kind of put that time and that effort in and it just gets reduced down to this man said this thing, leave a comment below. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And I, I, I basically use the platform to communicate my values. I don't take it that personal that it's soundbitey. Like, so I've had a love-hate relationship with television anyway. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I first got invited, it was in the context of Dope Black Dads and being a father and speaking about black men and family and yeah. different things that were going on at the time. And I was like a reluctant voice at the time because it, it's not really my mission. It's not really what I do. I've always been able to communicate, but that's about, for me, it's just about conviction more than anything else. I'm, I, I don't feel I'm a TV person. I don't live a life of a TV person. Like, I don't want you to come up to me and be like, like, talk to me. I won't. I just, I glaze because mm -hmm. this is not where my heart is. I want to do stuff. I want to do stuff that has an impact. Mm -hmm. um, so when I first started, it was very much a bit of a love-hate. Um, and I took a break for about 18 months, two years. And when I came back into doing it, it was really centered on, like, I just want to say what I want to say regardless of the context that they give me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So every time, and you may know, sometimes they ask me a question, I don't answer it. Mm -hmm. I just, I say what I would like to say in and around the subject. So what, the other day we were talking about Prince William. I don't particularly care about Prince William deeply. I'm not a royalist in any way, shape or form, but the subject of men being celebrated for their contribution yeah. and for leading in the home is so important mm. because the men that I speak to, they, you know, I'll revert back to my own personal experience. I wanted to be a dad so bad. Like I probably wanted it more than anything else that was happening in my life at that time. Mm. And I beelined for it, it happened and I didn't get it. That's a really rude awakening to life where you're committed to an idea that never comes to fruition. Yeah. And I couldn't reconcile with why I wasn't getting it. Like why it was not a nice loving experience for me. And so when I started that conversation, and I, it's the first time it made any sense is when I put men in a group and said, what's happening for you? Mm -hmm. And the honesty that came back literally shocked me. Like I, I, it shot me into first silence and then into action. So I, I, I armored myself with this desire to communicate what I had heard plus what I had experienced in as many rooms as possible. So I didn't care what the context was. You come and talk to me about COVID and black fathers are I'll just yeah, going yeah. to what I thought was then important to say within that context. Mm. So it became that. And the second time around was very much just around 
I want to stick to my guns of people still don't quite get it. Like they don't, they don't quite understand what happens for men in the pursuit of family. And I think often men don't even understand what's coming. And the men that can survive that environment are fewer and fewer each time. I think it's a very, very hot furnace for a man to be a part of a family and understand that he's best of himself has no value in that space. Your creative ideas, your clever quips, there's talent, there's tactics, the life skills that you've developed to get to become successful, Mm. desirable enough for someone to touch you and be like, maybe we should have a child. Get to that point and then you realise all of that thing you can't do in your family. No one's going to, your children don't come up to you and be like, oh my God, you're so good, morning, thank you so much. They don't give a a flying toss. My children just want to know, where am I? When am I coming back? When am I going to see you next? That is it. And so I had to reconcile with like a new side of me that I had never really connected with deeply. And the journey for that gave me all the answers, but the answers weren't what I wanted. The answers were just the opposite of what I was trying to do. It was like, Marvin, if you want to be a present, loving, active, supportive dad, you cannot be inside a family structure in that way because the experience of a dad, like parenting is very female normative. It's very very centered on the mother. Mm. As a dad, your fundamental role is to create the environment for the mother. If you feel you can come in and be like, I have an idea, what idea? Like, and watch what happens around you because it's not just your partner. It's not like women don't let men parent. It's like society requests very specific things Mm -hmm. from you. And if you try to go above and beyond that, they're very quick to tell you that you're doing too much. Yeah, this isn't this isn't your space. This is like, not your space. That, that <laughs> so I, I hear that. So like when thing. when I had um, when we had our son, I think it's taken years of like therapy and questioning, really like challenging my identity and working out who I am and where my value is. Mm. Because in those nine months where Rachel was pregnant and I was kind of just there, mm. like a lot of my value. I had placed a lot of my own personal sense of self on what I'm able to do (laughs) and how I'm able to serve and like what value I feel I bring to your life. Mm. In those nine months, the most I could do was like a little bit of, oh, let me, let me cook. Let me like rub your feet let me Mm. make you feel more comfortable. But, and as a father already by that point, there was nothing I could do Mm. for the child. Like I I felt locked out Mm. and hearing that, yeah, that perception of, okay, it's all good and well that you want to be an active father and you want to be in your son's life and you you want to do, like right now we're doing potty training mm. and I love it, but I hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's stepping urine, it's just like it's a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Slight sidebar, it's the moment where you put him, like you see, mm. he knows that he needs the toilet. He's doing all the jiggling, he's like, and then you sit him down and he's like, what are you doing? Mm. I don't want that gets up, goes running, and then he starts, and they're like, bro! Yeah. <laughs> we just, you were there, you know, I, you know I saw you seeing you seeing me. <laughs> What's this? Like. Wait, wait until is is the, the, the bed training, the sleep training. Oh man. The amount of times they wet the bed, just, just have a relationship with excrement, just have a relationship with it. <laughs> And you just think, fuck it, man. And do you know what? That I feel like I feel like I'm already I'm more ready for that than my wife is. Mm. So Rach, I've been doing a whole nappy free run around wet. When Rach's there, she's just a bit like, 
my carpets though. Yeah, no, like. it's a thing. Anything you like is not yours. Yeah. Mm. So Marvin, you, what what was it you were hearing in those conversations <laughs> that shocked you, to, that sh silenced you, and then moved you to action? Uh, it was it was mine on a scale. Like I didn't actually realize how privileged I was because I had tools. I, I've been in therapy since I was twenty seven, so I just been going in. And I'm not one of those people that go to therapy and like, <laughs> I need permission to go to, I go to the darkest place first mm. and I start and I work backwards. So by the time I was having children at 32 and by the time I started Dope Black Dads at maybe 34, 35, <clears throat> what I thought was like, wow, this is, I'm on my own. I was like, people haven't even started the question, yeah. mm -hmm. let alone the journey. And so I was like, I want to use what I have. It wasn't very much. It just was more than I realized. I wanted to take what I had and I wanted to give it to the men. But the men were like, and I want to honor them as much as possible, but it, it, it was everything you can think of. It was like, I struggle with fidelity. I struggle with being a man. Like I didn't, I didn't have a father. I don't know what, mm. what, what, what is too much and what is not enough. How much should I hug my child? How much should I discipline? What level of tone is too much? Do you beat your children? Like what works for you? Like so much stuff. Some people were talking about suicide and I was like, you're like the happiest, smartest, funniest guy I know. And you're telling me you tried twice this year. I had to really reconcile with the, with the weight that masculinity comes with mm -hmm. because I was raised in a matriarch. Yeah, My whole cool. upbringing was around women. And because of that, I had a first line insight into gay men. They were around us. So it was like, I've seen things happen to gay men that I, make me angry. So even now, you can't be homophobic about it. I don't care what your view is. Like, you gotta wrap it up. So I hold that space because I've unfortunately seen abused women, physically abused gay men, emotionally abused gay men and couples and everything, all those things. And I've had to just watch them. I've seen kids be neglected, dismissed, beaten, told to be worthless and then told to go have a nice day. I've seen that because that just happens around like working low income families, that just mm. happens. And so I advocate on that particular basis. So when I realized that this was happening at scale, I was, I was actually scared to be honest. Like it wasn't a space I was comfortable in just sitting in and being like, oh yeah, I'm the guy that knows. I, don't, I didn't have any ego. I was like, I was like give, me, give me more, what else is happening for? And I just went out and told the stories. So when we started our podcast, it was like three months in, it's cause I couldn't keep the feeling in, yeah. like it was so heavy on me. It was like, you're the founder, like what's your plan? I was like, I haven't, got, I came here because I was sad. I didn't, I don't have a plan. Mm -hmm. And so I had to respect the stories and I had to respect the anonymity of those people, but I wanted to make sure people understood and I felt I had the language. So I took it out on the road and just set, told everyone that pay attention to the men in your house, in your life. The story you have about your dad, the man in your life isn't the end of the story. Like, have you ever listened to your husband without actually looking for something that you can respond to. Like, have you ever listened to your dad? I don't even know what your relationships are with your dad. Have you sat and listened to him talk about his life? And every time I speak to my uncles, I hear stuff and I'm like, and you're just here, just mm. like being. Not, not particularly mm. active. You don't speak very much because, you know, life, remembering all that stuff is difficult, but there's no space for that man to discover his emotional journey and to yeah. share that stuff. There's no context for him to be vulnerable in it. It's like he has to find an answer to keep providing still. Like, so I, I really honor the men that came before and even the men that you know get called out for their lack of contribution. I honor them because I know that wasn't just, I don't care. 
there's a story as to why you got there because I know for so many men, they wanted to be loved themselves. Mm. Like being raised as barrel children or being mm. raised as farm children or just like coming here and being told that you're nothing at every level of society and your parents are working three jobs so they can't raise you. are raised by you know a distant community or the church and all these little subplots that we all went through, we just kind of forgotten because yeah. the internet's here and we're like, oh yeah, well that guy doesn't do... So, you know, we'll create that context and we'll create that safe space for every man to say the thing that's really moving them. And if we can find an answer, which for me is just men spending more time with men. Yeah. Like we've got to find an intimacy amongst us where we can have conversations that aren't centered on getting girls making money. Mm. And I feel like at the end of it, women will benefit long-term, but we can't even think about them in the selfish things that we need. Like you kind of got to do stuff that may not look good and look good at the time, but you got to do it because Without it, we're gonna create that cycle again. More men will go into these family dynamics, find out they've got no air, no space to say how they feel, no space for rest, there's no true support in it, and then you end up trying to serve this idea to the point that it breaks you. Yeah. Because when these men die in their 50, when they're 55, 60, and there's no granddads around, and there's no man that I know that's powerful, successful, it's not necessarily powerful, I mean just energetically, mm. at 60 plus, there's not one in my life, mm. why? Where yeah. are they? Mm. Tons of grandmothers, tons of women just around, just living with their families. Like when they die, their families are surrounded their bed. And when men die, it's just like, there's two people that come through mm. and one brethren that's just about, he, he drinks with. Yeah. This is not like sustainable. Like it's actually quite a violent thing that I'm, I'm trying to find ways to bring this to the awareness of men without it becoming an anti-women sentiment. Yeah. Cause you can Thanks. get into that. Like a pro man can sound mad, to a woman who's listening for like, is this guy safe or not? Yeah, I'm just centering what men need to do. I and and on, yeah. on that as well, there's, there's a few things that you said that really resonated there because I'm not a dad yet. I'm hoping to be in the next few years. Not too sure the timeline just yet, but we're, we're getting there. And I started therapy 2020, I think it was, mm. because I was like, I want to make sure that I'm ready. I want to make sure that I've got the, t the tools and the skill set to be what I didn't grow up around because Jamaican dad, he was not around very much, but he is a very good father to my younger brothers and sisters, to a mm. different wife. And I always wondered why there was that disconnect between me and the, my other siblings. The most important thing that I got from my therapy sessions was them asking me basically, what do I need to get from that, that, that relationship with my dad? Because I'd already accepted that we were never gonna be best friends. Mm. It was never gonna happen. And it's when I realized that I just needed him to know how I felt. And secondly, I just wanted to know who he is. Because whilst I've known my dad all 33 years I've been alive, I've not once known a thing about him. And giving him the opportunity to sit down and for us two to just chat, which had never happened before. Like, I mean, chat, chat. Mm. It was one of the most important evenings of my life because there were things that you just mentioned about barrel children. I didn't know that my dad was born here, spent the next 10 years of his life back in Jamaica whilst his mom and dad, my grandparents, set up a life over here. Mm -hmm. So when he moves back over here now, think about the life that he's having, he's just the odd one out. Mm -hmm. And I'm here expecting him to be the perfect father at his first go. I'm here expecting him to call his son and tell him that he loves him when he didn't even see his parents for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can, how, can, how can I expect him to have those tools, have that skill set, and then me be just real, real mad with him the whole time because he doesn't have that. And that is the context that I miss. And yes, my mum might always be just apoplectically angry at him because of the kind of father that he wasn't. The father that he wasn't. 
But I think in me giving him the opportunity to explain his past to me, my dad doesn't ever speak. So to hear him speak just openly for two hours was wild to Possibly, me. That, yeah. that alone was wild to me. But then on top of that, it gave me not necessarily closure, but it, it gave me the tools to not necessarily just be bitter mm -hmm. and to understand. And I think to your point, that is exactly what we lack within, I can't speak to white men, but black men in particular. It's just, we've all got these shared experience. A lot of us have got these shared experiences, but what you're doing is amazing because so many people just don't talk about it. It's mm. just like, we've been dealt a bad hand. We just got to do what we got to do. Yeah. And it's so, so important, man. Do you find a lot of um, men that have come to you have tried to find it in other spaces? Because when I was listening to you, I, I was thinking, because we've talked a lot about like the right wing grift and we've talked about how one of the, the reason that a lot of people are making money from the right wing grift is because there's a lot of people that can see a problem, but then they work out different ways that to have a solution. So your solution is actually kind of how do I help mm. men? How do I help black men specifically? And it's it's altruistic. I, I would yeah. I would say that I would say that what you do is incredibly altruistic. I think what you do is is incredible, dope. You know, um, but I also know that that's what Jordan Peterson says that he does. I also know that's what Russell Brand says that he does. And there are so many other, Andrew Tate would say the same thing. Do you find that the men that are coming to you have kind of tried some of those other avenues first? And if so, how do no, you? I, I, I think the person that, um, you won't get to me until you try some stupid shit. Because mm. it won't make sense. Like, it, I won't make sense to you until you attempted some other stuff and then it violently came back into your face and you lost things that you didn't want to yeah. lose. Because the work I'm telling you is, like, really work. There's there's no shortcut. They're, they're like, as you talked about, you listened to your dad for two hours and you have this really good intellectual understanding, but there's something in here that even at times you're just hoping that he turns around and goes, oh, you know what, son? Yeah. I'm proud of you. Or, you know what, son? That conversation really moved me. And like, it's this profound addition that you're like, did you? Did it move you the way it moved me? Like there's a little <laughs> boy in all of us. And I think my yeah. little boy like has things that he wants. And so I still have to grapple. Like I'm still somebody that has days where I'm like, oh, that wasn't my best self. Like it's really possible. And I hate, I can't, the reason why I don't, fundamentally would never even got into any of those people is because their answers are too succinct. Mm -hmm. Like, you think if you can just go to the gym, work out, eat broccoli and fudging chicken breast with no seasoning. <laughs> no seasoning's yeah. important. Oh, it's serious. Like, yeah. tell, tell women to come here and like, you're their man now, that life is gonna be good. You have no affinity. This is why so many, this is why the divorce rate is so high for women divorcing men is because every man that tried that attempt, they, they call it like, um, gra is it grabbing in like um, traveler culture? Yeah. Like this idea of like, I'm gonna go up to a woman, convince her that she should be with me. And one day she's gonna look at you and be like, there's nothing here. Mm -hmm. I can't connect with you. I can't go through life with you because you're stone. And like you keep eating broccoli and talking about the world and how this doesn't work and just complaining. And then they leave and then it makes those men more angry. It's so like the they get radicalized by their inability to connect with themselves and ask much more complicated questions like, why don't I communicate to my wife that I love her? Why don't I want to spend time with her, still time with her? Why do I treat her like I'm a, it's a tick box exercise? Yeah. And then that's why they, that's why they leave. And so for, for me, it's really important that like, 
I don't want anyone coming around me thinking it's easy mm. because I, I use nice words and I express my, like, no, it's hard. There are days, like I was just saying this today, like to, it's been a heavy two days and, and there's no re, there's no headline as to it's hard because yeah. it's just yeah. like little things are just like, yo, I got to deal with that now. One second, <laughs> like, oh, and there's another thing over here. And I'm just like, actually, this has been going on for two days, but it's been like three, four things a day that have just been a bit harder to do than normal. And I'm like, I've got to break this cycle. The way I do it is I go inwards. Mm. I spend some time with myself. I just want to slow down because every time I try to fight the universe, I get my ass handed to me. Mm. And so, so many men taking on these like personas and being like, Andrew Tate's got a Bugatti and like, and they think that anything is going to be an answer that's monetary or in, in the code of which he's given. Bearing, bearing in mind, he's about to go to jail. Or if not gone to jail, he's been completely stripped of many of these yeah. privileges. It's like, why do you aspire to that? Because to, to, to the way he's communicated is just like, you make money, do my course, make money, <laughs> you get girls, you buy this car, everyone will give you respect, you take no shit, you work out, you learn to fight. Like It's like 1970s Rocky shit. Yeah. So for me, the men that are around me are very flexible in their ability. It's like, they can kick your ass and they can meditate. Mm -hmm. Like that for me is the, the balance of masculinity. You've got to be able to do both. Yeah. And I think too many of us have learned the other way, but look, I, I pray for them all because I know what's coming for those other men. One day they're going to run out of people to complain. If you are a right wing white racist man and you're like, everyone's got to get out of my country, there'll be a time when there's no one in the country and who are you going to complain? Mm -hmm. Now what's your plan? Because we all know intellectually that that's not the problem. In fact, migration was helping this country to be whatever it was. Yeah. So you will run out of people to complain, to complain to or to complain about and those people will move on without you and there'll be no space for you by your own fruition. So I'm making sure that I'm I'm ready for whatever happens in the universe. I don't I don't I'm not trying to perfect an outcome. I'm just I, whatever happens, if a fire starts, I am prepared. If I need to run, I'm prepared. If I have to fight, I'm prepared. If I got to cook for myself, yeah. I'm prepared. And I think that's what for me a, a man should be really about. Like let's say there's there's someone listening to this podcast. It's like I don't even know where to start with mm. this work. Where would you recommend that they start? Well, I think for me, you have to audit your life to start off with. It's impossible to to look for answers if you don't even know where like it is and isn't working for you. And for me, the measurement is like, is it working for you? And that's a, like a morning and night question. Mm. When you wake up in the morning, do you have an ambition and a zest for the day ahead? And when you go to bed, is there something about that day that genuinely you thought I moved a step closer to what I want for myself? That's where I say massage that question for a period of time and actually write journal. If you're not journaling, even as a man, like you can try and type, you can try and use your phone and voice note. It's just not the same. Mm. Journaling has a, a specific way of like extracting information of you in a completely different way than speaking can. And so writing that down and preferably in a structured framework, um, there are so many journals available that are like structured, like day planners, and it gives you like strategies, objectives and goals. And like there's the three pages creative method where you just write whatever's yeah. in your head, adopt those methods um, and then find the thing that reoccurs. So there's a question that is what's unwanted but persists. And it's a great life question. Um, it's a bit wordy for unless you're like in the, in that realm of like doing therapy, mm. but it basically means what keeps happening in your life that you really don't want to happen, but it just keeps happening. Yeah. If you start there, it's a great thread and just tug on it and go to your therapist, say the worst thing you feel about yourself when nobody else is listening and looking and then just wait. Mm. 
and let the magic happen. Because their question would be like, well, what, what made you think of that? Or when was the last time that happened? Or why do you think that is? And just take your time with it, but start in the ugly place. Don't go there and be like, oh, well, my girlfriend broke up with me and she told me something and she didn't do this and just tell stories. Go with like eye, the eye part, and then just watch it unravel. And then from there, there's some great stuff. There's a book called Untethered Soul, which I love. It's about the inner voice. Mm. When you learn it, it's powerful. There are courses. I did a 10 day silent retreat. Um, I've done landmark forum. I've done coaching. Well, find your stuff. Like, and the thing is, don't go in and thinking this is the answer in its completion. Don't ever go there and think this is like a pill. Yeah. Go in there and feel like I'm going to learn some tools today and take what makes sense for you, what operates in your time. Only you know what that is. And you'll just start finding yourself in somewhere and you'll realize that some people in your life can't be in your life no more. And some of your behaviors are really problematic, not only to them, but to you. Like loads of stuff come out, man. It's kind of beautiful in the end. Like I, I love myself now. I, I didn't love myself five, 10 years ago. I was just doing stuff thinking, hopefully so this will create love because I'm at my acts of service to, you know, people and things. It just, it never comes. You said you started therapy a long, long time ago. What was the catalyst for that? So my, my best friend in university, um, I don't know, it, there, there was an event. That's all I can say, there was an yeah. event. And the event that didn't make sense to anyone around us, his family, his family thought we radicalized him. And I was like, nah, we have dope conversations, like genuine, amazing black man, healthy conversations about the world we want to live in and family and you know work. And, 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 and he just had an event and I couldn't place he was like a mirror to me. Like he was raised in like the Midlands, but he was basically me. Mm. Like come from a good family, like good values, super smart, suave, you know, a little bit, yeah, yeah. you know, charismatic, like a little something to him. Like us. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he lingered on me when he said, yeah, sure, but this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Sorry. now the lift was violent, bro. So, <laughs> no, I like starting rumors, innit? But, um, <laughs> So yeah, so like that after that session, after that experience, I I I was scared. I was like, I could just sleepwalk into this. And so I remember being so specific that I needed a, a woman that it was a counselor at the time. I needed to be a woman, it had to be a woman of colour. And I wanted her in her 40s. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. I was so specific. And I went on a couple and I sat down with this woman. And then she asked me some really important questions and she was like, Marvin, I think you have nothing to worry about, but you do have to be aware that this is a thing, how it can good occur. And, and after that sentence, four sessions, I was like, clocked I'm it. I'm fixed. Don't <laughs> 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 need to do that. And then, then listen, life, I said, life lives you. So I think very quickly afterwards, other things were just happening. Like I just had a relationship with, I was angry. Couldn't figure out why. Like I felt like I was quite a happy person, but then I had these just like experiences of just like, what the, what the, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, and my relationship with other people started to get strained and I was just like, I'm not having this. Like, this is the most bizarre thing. Why is this? And then like, there's this balance of inner work and outer work that you've got to master. So it's not even just going to therapy and you get an answer. You then got to do the outer work mm -hmm. and be like, how do I use what I know now in my everyday life? Yeah. That I find really, really difficult. Like, I think I, I have ADHD anyway. So it's like the, my, my processing is just fundamentally different to neuronormative people. Mm. And it's really hard to put it into context, but my brain hyper-focuses on challenges, really complex, difficult things. Yeah, And I will overcome them in like three days. In three days, I'll think about something. I remember when I was buying a, an engagement ring once and I was like, I became a diamond expert <laughs> by the end of the week. 
Like, I was like, because I went down Hatton Garden, I was like, I think you're ripping me off because your character's off and your aura is off. And this is another thing about ADHD. You pick up on energies and mm. empathy, like, very easily. And then I went to another guy. I was like, your energy's better, but your pricing is worse than his. So I was like, do you know what? I need to know. So I went up and down the high street, spoke to everybody. And then finally one guy sat me down and he was like, there's like cart, there's like clarity. And he was like, telling me about the grades of it and the size of it. And he's like, and I was like, what kind of cut do you want? I was like, I want a princess cut. That's a pr he was like, right, so get this, 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 and this. Look for this in this price bracket. If you find it, you've got a winner. If it goes above, it's still cool, but it's a bit too much. Then I went around the market and I just told everyone what I want and they just gave me what I want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, actually, and then <laughs> two days later, I forgot it all. Like that's a part of the magic. So I, I think for me very much so identifying who I really am, uh, how I go through the world is a real journey. And I need, I, I would love, I love it when I hear people's stories about when they figure those things out. It's the most beautiful thing to hear someone say like, I sat with myself asked those questions, got an idea of what that is. And then now I'm just working on applying it like to my mission, to my partner. And that's tough. And I, I got space for those men all day. Like I have a really good group of men around me that I just have a lot of admiration for. And I, I make sure they're in like our space and we just have these conversations because it's just needed. And where else the hell are you gonna do this? We only have people on the podcast whose stuff we actually like. This is So I think that's really important to say you really do need to be listening to the podcast and you do invite what I like about the podcast is there are people of what I would call different stages of the 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 kind of of the cycle there's kind of yourself you're obviously closer to my age you've got some guys that are in their early 20s I love that you think that by the way I don't even know how old you are but I don't, whatever that is <laughs> that sizing <laughs> up man <laughs> that's cool I've what, done my research no, compete. it's fine it takes two minutes no no you get two black like... men just <laughs> me <laughs> if you pull your dick out, I'm leaving. <laughs> the, 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 I'm so shook right now. Kevin doesn't do that anymore. Like after, <laughs> yeah, anymore. Yeah, after the I'm lockdown. so shook right now. But what I was. <laughs> There is, there, is something, there is something really fun about throwing you off, I can't lie. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say about getting your dick out. I was like, yo! <laughs> that's you ain't even know it. That's a different episode. Oh, <laughs> different man, episode. Yo, video. I need to go with my <laughs> Sorry, sir, you were saying something um, really no, I'm, I'm, uh, let me catch it. Let me catch it. I'll be, I'll be back in a second. I'm just, I'm just like, well, I feel like I turned left when I should have gone right. Oh, you're somewhere. crossing your legs right now. Um, I feel like I'm. I've got to your soul a little bit. I'm sorry, bro. It's safe. Um, no, what? So. I'm I'm interested. I'm interested. What what's your process in terms of inviting people on? In terms, because obviously your podcast is is a space where you project certain things and you invite people on. And I sometimes listen to it and I go, that doesn't like they they don't their politics may not necessarily align with yours, but you you bring them on anyway. What's the process that you're going through? Because one of the most difficult things is sometimes you know you invite somebody on you not, you're not actually sure what they're going to say so what is the pro especially for dope black dads because there is this thing that it's like there is a danger of pedestaling isn't it like there's not many people that do what you do that live in your space and what yeah i'm really interested what is the process that you go by when you kind of bring in guests on i'd love to know who you think that guest is by the way because uh yeah i'd love to know who you think that guest it's just is. it's more in terms of ages and stages that's oh, okay in in the sense of like if you've been if you've been following you for a while, you kind of there's this understanding of like the journey that you've gone through, and it sometimes feels that some people go on and it's like they're f they're they're on a, f a step further back almost, but they still come on and they add they do add to it. Yeah. But it's almost like well, if you'd have listened to episode twenty seven, 
you might not be saying the things that you're you're saying now. Do you, yeah, do you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? So so look, I, one thing is that I, I I always feel there is no hierarchy. There's no up, down, left, right, good, bad. It's just where someone's at. And the number one thing I look for when I want to talk to someone for long periods is like, are they reachable in any way? Are they open? Yeah. And I think whoever has been on my podcast has played a role in my life at some point. I don't I don't book people because they do something. I don't, I don't know. Everyone I know, I know personally, they're in my phone. I've sat with them previously. And I think building that relationship becomes really important. So like, for example, I had a, we did one last week of me, Taser, and J2K, my regular co-host, Darwood, um, and Romantha as well. And J2K and I have reoccurred since 20, 2005. Uh, me and Taser have reoccurred since 2007. Darwood and I have been friends since 2000 and probably during the same time. The, the beauty of all of that is, is that they all speak to a side of me, mm. like a side of who I still am. And we had a really good conversation about growing up in a state culture and what that creates for you as a man. Like we present now as like fully rounded men, professional, full-time dad, like community person. But there is a part of me that has been heavily impacted by growing up with a hovering near death threat on my yeah. life constantly. And so there's certain movements, sounds, energies that sh can still shift me and take me off my center. And I have a lot of empathy for people who didn't have the privilege of time, space, guidance to come out of that. So there is no one that's out of scope and unreachable. Like in blackness, you can be touched by blackness, any part of it. It's one of the blessings and the challenges of winning it. You're never out of it. Like it's like, you know, Jay-Z saying, oh, I'm not black, I'm OJ. You're reachable. Either, either whiteness will reach you and remind you of where you are from and where you need to return to, or blackness is always a cousin, friend, family member away. You can go somewhere and be like, you're literally like someone who used to murder people outside Ministry of Sound and you're just sitting there doing a podcast. Mm. Oh, hi. That is an experience, but I can't, I can't make a measurement of that. So I, I think everyone's reachable. I like to spend time with interesting people who bring a perspective and I like to have a conversation with them about what really moves them. I want to get down to the food of them. And what I realized is, is a uh, uh, last part to this is like, uh, maybe about three years ago, there was, there was someone in Hackney who was like, he's lived a very colorful life, let's say. And when I met him originally at 15, 16, it was like, this guy's long, it's just long. And I don't, I don't know why he was this way, but he was funny as hell. Like he, he used to make us laugh in such a way, it was weird when he would try to rob you. <laughs> it was weird. It was like, he would pull out a knife on you and you'd be like, what? How? Hmm. But he didn't have it. Your changed face is gone. So, and I, and I one time he reached out to me and we had a, an amazing conversation. And he, he alluded to this because I was on his podcast. So it wasn't like my chance to dig into him. And he was just like, yeah, growing up my house and he gave an indication into his house at the time and who he had to become because of the family name that he had and whatever. And I was just like, you know how I never would have attributed that to you. Mm -hmm. Like I just had a program that you were just on crud and it was slightly long. And I, I thought you were funny, genuinely. And we used to talk about football and I genuinely would debate with you, but he just, it was long for the other stuff. So I just kept my distance. But now that I know who he is, I would always make time. Yeah. Always. And it reminds me of that human element of like all the men that they try to get us to dismiss, mm -hmm. they genuinely don't want to be doing that. 
Like mm. selling drugs is not a valuable <laughs> enterprise at this particular point. If you could sell on the internet, if you could sell mugs on Amazon, you probably are as profitable as it is to sell drugs. So as far as I'm concerned, if they learn the code and the information and get the skills up, they will do other things. Yeah. They want to be here. They want to fight for themselves. They want to have a family. They want to be good men. And I think when I speak to them, it inspires me to keep going because I know that they're reachable. Mm. Tunde is a newish dad. Dad to a toddler. Yeah. Two yeah. years old. He is a grown man. <laughs> like, he's a grown two-year-old man. And you guys have made a decision that I wanted to talk about. You uh, bought a house. Yes, sir. And you bought it outside of London. Yes. Even yeah. though yourself and your partner are both from London. From South East, and I yeah. wanted to know why you chose to do that. So many things. Um, first of all, money. Mm. I think the reality is um, for anyone who's looking for a house right now, we know what the housing crisis is like. Back in 2020, it wasn't quite as bad because we hadn't quite been Liz Trust. Um, <laughs> but even then, it was crazy trying to look for places in London that actually were nice and affordable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was lucky because where I used to work at Deloitte and I put a lot of effort into saving money. Mm -hmm. I had a decent deposit down, but trying to find a place that was like, we, we needed three bedrooms because we knew there was a baby coming um, and we needed the home office because we'd already lived through the pandemic by that point. Um, we wanted a garden space, again, because baby and their clothes and parks left, right and centre, mm -hmm. so having some kind of green space and needed parking. That was a bougie request, I can't <laughs> didn't need parking, but wanted it. And... To try and get any of that in London would have been at least twice as much mm -hmm. um, as we found out in Gravesend. Mm -hmm. So I think what we spent on our house in the end would have gotten us a one, maybe two bedroom flat above a Morley's in Lewisham. Bloody hell, man. So what I wanted to ask, though, do you, did you have the discussion about that sort of social dislocation? Because obviously if you, as grown and raised in, uh, but both you and your partner born and raised southeast London. You've yeah. moved out now. It's not too far, but it is it is far. Do you worry for your child kind of growing up not around like his community? Not as much. So we we both grew up in southeast. My parents are still in um, like Grove Park area, but Rachel's parents had actually moved out to Swanley, which is on the edge of um, southeast London and Kent. So we already had some connections to Kent. It's not too far out. When we were thinking about that connection to family and connection to community, we were intentional about not going too far out. And, and I think that changed a lot because of our son. When we first got married or when we were first engaged, we were like, I, I work in Deloitte. The pandemic hadn't happened, so mm -hmm. I was still flying all over the place, traveling all over the country, all over the world for work. So I was like, I actually don't care where we live because I'm probably not gonna be in the house as much. You will be the one who spends most of the time at home, so I don't want you to be too far out. Yeah. And she was like, nah, I don't care. Let's move to Scotland. Like, all right. <laughs> oh, hold, on hold on now. Hold on now, player. Wait a minute. <laughs> Now, again, when you look at the money, 
Scotland, Durham, all of those areas up there, for what we paid for our house, you could get a mansion. So I understood the logic. I saw the vision. Mm-hmm. As soon as we had the, we found out we were pregnant, we were like, yeah, nah, nah, we can't do that. Mm-mm. Yeah, can't do that. And it's not been as bad as we necessarily thought it would be. Like the first few months trying to find your feet, bit of a struggle because like you don't know anyone in the area necessarily. Yeah. Mm. Um, but once we found church, that was kind of that foundation for us. We mm. found church, we found our people. And the good thing for us was it wasn't just a black church because my dad's a pastor. So mm. I've done the whole Nigerian only church thing. Hate it. Mm. But you don't like six hour services. You know what? There's something about <laughs> it. There's something about it. Like when you're, when you're in at the start, you're like, yeah, I'm feeling it. The drums are really speaking to me. <laughs> After the third hour, you're a bit like, Jesus, is, is this still you? <laughs> what? you Why still? you reload the song again? Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> go again, go again, go again. <laughs> so, okay, okay. I need then, to do it just one time. And then four, five, um, you don't. <laughs> I, I love Jesus. You don't need to do that. <laughs> so, Dom, you're in a slight, you're, it's almost like you're a couple of steps behind in terms of obviously getting married this year. Can't wait. It's going to be boop, 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 the party of the century, possibly even the millennium. And obviously, you and your partner, uh, you've talked quite openly on the pod about kind of wanting to start a family, have children. What, but you're neither you or your partner are originally from London. Um, so, mm-hmm. what goes into the thought process for yourself and and Yan when it comes to deciding where you guys want to live? It's a tough one. And I'm always quite deliberate when I talk about this because as you said, not from here, Yan's not from here. But the reasons that we are still here are very much still important. They're very much still relevant in terms of blackness, opportunity, diversity, all of that that London offers, which has always been really important to me in terms of where I set up my life in the future for my kids as well as for myself. Don't have kids yet, but when we have them, we want say, to. That's a very Jamaican thing to just reveal. So <laughs> for that, there for might that be some pick me out this one. I don't know, I don't know. I'd be surprised, <laughs> but I won't be shocked. Um, no. So I think when it comes to where we're gonna actually settle, it was always right. Where can we be around our kind of people? Mm. A few things have started to shift recently. Obviously, it's becoming more of a reality in terms of we are getting married this year. Our future is less our future and more of our now. So it's like these conversations are kind of really getting momentum. They're speeding up. We're getting we're getting serious about this now. And one of my good friends, he is a doctor and he works in several hospitals around London. And one of the things that was a real driver in terms of where we settle down, where I have kids, et cetera, has become a concern for me now because he works in hospitals. He says that on a, on a good week, he might see seven or eight kids have been stabbed. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, typically on the news, you see and hear about the ones that die. You don't hear about all of the near misses. You don't hear about... The, the nicks that people get. You don't hear about the smaller cases and the smaller incidents. And it's got to the point where he says quite openly, he loves London. He's the greatest city that he's ever been to, greatest city that he's ever lived in, but he couldn't raise kids here. And the reason 
I have a little bit of turmoil in having this conversation is because whilst I've been here for almost 10 years now, I'm still an outsider. Like this isn't truly my city. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't raised here. This isn't my city. So it feels a little bit unfair to me for me to be really critical about the city and for me to have a view of the city that would potentially deter my own unborn children's future away from being here. Um, but it terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me because you've got so much opportunity, so many things that my kids could have that I didn't have in terms of the community, just being around people that look like them and are like them. But then there's the, the fears that I never had to deal with growing up. I mean, obviously you, you grew up in London. How do you navigate that with the fears that you internalize and can still be triggers to you based yeah, on your upbringing with your kids? I'm having a moment of like, do I want my son to do schooling in a particular borough? Mm. And I don't, because I raised in a very similar borough and I know what the, the code of that is and it yeah. hasn't gone. Mm. And as much a part of like, uh, again, we talked about this on our podcast, like, do you, how much do you traumatize your children yeah. with your version of your past um, versus just like allow them to have the privilege. I'm pro-privilege, you know. Like I'm pro just creating that entitlement for him. I want him to wake up in the world and be like, you know, dad, I want to work in music. And he's, his uncle, equivalent godfather is like head of a label. And it's like, yeah. go go do that. Yeah. I, think, I think we've learned to have an affinity to challenge and pain in a way that is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I don't need my son to risk, you know, my life is like, I could have been the person who was killed or gone to jail about a hundred times just by standing there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was never the leader, never involved in things, but you stand there too long, you know, and actually the thing that saved me is I got a job. My mum was like, I ain't giving you money. Mm. All my friends had TNs. I couldn't piece together 10 pounds to get a TN. <laughs> so I went and got a job in Woolworths. Shouts to Woolworths when they it was around. And yeah. their three pound 52 an hour saved me. Yeah. Um, and basically in that's in one summer, between 6 and 10 p.m. when my shift was, was when all the craziness would happen. Mm. And I was not there, and I would come back at 10, and it was like, no, man! <laughs> it's like yeah. someone bleeding and shit. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, oh, I'm really glad I was at work. Hey, you want pick and mix? This is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got one-to-one -one poker. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> if you get it, you got it. Um, and then uh, <laughs> um, I think that relationship with like, and this is why I say, having love in your home is so important. Mm. Like having a home that your child can return to is so important. Every time I got in trouble, I could go to my mum and be like, mum, and I get, again, I don't know why I get this language from, but I told my mum one time, I wasn't my best self. This thing happened um, outside school today. And it just, it just I, it doesn't sit well with me. And she talked, talked, me, talked at me for two hours and it was like, look, I appreciate you telling me, go to bed. I didn't think any of it, a week later, police are knocking on the door being like, we feel like this is da 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 da. And the thing that saved our relationship is that she had a, a context and a clue as to what was coming. Yeah. yeah. And you know, at that time I was like, I, I was running from something else. Like, as I said, if you feel like you live in a world where you're constantly risking whether you're gonna die or not, people threatening to stab you on your way home. So I walked three hours the wrong direction to try and miss this one person who's waiting on the edge of my estate. Like when you're living in that space, you know, you will do things that are out of character yeah. that you don't want to do. You have to make those choices. So every time I think I navigated a, a situation, I think of everybody else who couldn't navigate that situation and had to, was forced to become the most dangerous person in a borough because mm. it was either that or the thing that he started six months ago was going to kill him. So he had to get worse and worse and keep going. 
those stories make me sad, bro. And we, and we all know too many people yeah, like that yeah. as well, which is really sad. So that that's my DNA for why I think I survive. But sometimes I have survivor's remorse. Like, it's just a thing. So what's interesting with that is like, our podcast tagline is the world is told by black faces in white spaces. And one of the things that we spoke about right back at the inception of this is like, Dom grew up in Yorkshire. Um, I was born in London, lived in Brixton, but moved to Kent back in the eighties um, because of- We're not the same age, bro. I was waiting for that. <laughs> some respect on my youth. <laughs> I was an idea in the 80s. Jello was there, like, so remember the bus strike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bristol bus strike in Bristol. Nah, bro, I don't know it. I'm good now, now, because I got rocked in the second round. So, like, I know I've tasted the power now. I've tasted the power. I'm okay. I'm okay. But no, what I was going to say is that, like, I hear those stories, and this 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 might sound really messed up, and. I go, wow, that's terrible, that's dangerous. But there's also a context where you saw, you were seeing faces that looked like you. And it's a very different experience growing up as a black person where you have to, the, the, you're the only black, so I was the only black person in my primary school. I was one of three black people at my secondary school. Mm. I didn't really start hanging around black people again, really until I moved back to London yeah. just the, like last year. So, the, I guess my question is, is like with the name like Dope Black Dads and with the people that you're seeing, is it mostly people from like London? Like obviously that's where 65% of all black people in the UK live is in is in London. So obviously it makes sense the majority of there. Are you seeing people that have come from, black people that have come from different environments who are struggling with like an identity that I think, or an ex, uh, there, is there an experience gap where there's experiences that you've had that, I know about like my family came like I know I I, I talk to my family but they they're not my experiences growing up and uh, are you seeing that in your in your spaces or is it just now everybody's actually no, from it's a mixed bag and I, I think that's what kind of makes it beautiful there are people who are in their 60s and who have adult children there are people who are in their 60s and have <laughs> children that are very young um there's people from out of town in town also it's global so there's like there's lot there's a lot of people in stories and experiences I think where the consistent threads of our experiences so clear that how the world sees us informs our surroundings often. And so it's about creating compassion for that experience. And, you know, having people who earn seven figures next to people who drive buses is always a really good equalizer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's so easy. And again, it's like sometimes I, I, I realized there was a point, the point where I went to do a 10 day silent retreat was because, um, someone challenged me, I was actually in South Africa and someone challenged me and they were like, there are so many people who talk about the work work, and not people that are doing it. And then they were like to someone, that, another guy was like, when was the last time you did any serious intentional work on yourself? And at that point, I've been talking about this mission for so long, I hadn't done anything. I hadn't committed in any way. And I think too, too often it's easy for me to be like in my comfortable spaces in nice cushy studio rooms and being like, oh, well, you know, this is what needs to happen for us. And I just forget the person who you can't even bother watch that. Yeah. Like I forget the person that I, I still represent that person in some way, like whether I like it or not, we walk side by side, same, same. It's like none of you get on this bus. So I think it's really important that we honor the people who couldn't, who don't have the tools mm -hmm. to do the great things that we're doing. And we need to create a space for them to have that tone, even if it doesn't sound good. Mm. Yeah. And I think so often, like we're so quick to throw other men away. And, and look, I feel, 
in regards to how black women feel specifically about men, it's different. They're, they should have, they have every right to have that experience yeah. and to communicate those things. That doesn't stand for us though. Like we have to hold them, uh, each other to account in a different way mm -hmm. and hear what they have to say. But we know there's nowhere for us to go. Like this is it. Black women were our safe space and we kind of ruined it. So it, it's upon us now to reestablish. But you can't reestablish with other black women being like, hey, I know you're a bit scared of us at the moment and we've done some things to you. But if you could just hug me a little bit more and I can mm. get through this white oppression. It's like, my guy, listen. Yeah. They're like, no, move. So I think it's upon us to create those spaces. I'm so intentional on men like creating little mini groups. Like create your own circle and just meet up once a month and just force people to say things that aren't around football, sex, money, my job. I don't give two shits. Like yeah. until you tell me your things, I don't, you haven't got me until you've told me your things. I, I don't rate you. I don't think anything more of you or less of you just here saying stuff. I need to know what's happening for you for real. Once we get there, we can move because now it's powerful. And do you think that, that gap that you talked about, that dislocation um, to do with black women, do you think it, can be healed or do you think it's just one of those that it, it may it may not happen in our lifetime you know you, we may die and not having the relationship that we want with the women that we care about the most and that's that's the saddest thing again i said i raised in a matriarch my relationship to women is that they know they can be safe around me and i intentionally create that like it's not a like a hoarding of women for like for vibes and for sex it's like I want to know what you're about yeah. who are you and i enjoy that privilege that i have access to the women that i do to on mass can you get a hundred men in a room and be like if we bring men they can feel set no can i control that no can i i can create a condition and a tone or or language for how that needs to change but it's we're a long way away like as you said red pill environments are like gaining ground for every one of me there's 10 of them mm. and they're growing fast and they just don't care they think everything must happen at the cost of other people. They think they must control and dominate as many people as humanly possible. And I just look at them and I just think it will hit you soon. It's what, completely unworkable. And what do you think are some of the structural reasons for this explosion of like the red pill environment and all of that? To be honest, I think poverty, I think, I think economic challenges drives people more than education, than love, than anything. And I think for men specifically, our inability to provide sustainably generationally has forced us into how do we leave the system and create our own. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about men and trading and crypto and like all those things, they over-index in those spaces, Amazon, trying to be an influencer, yeah. anything to not have to go sit in an office and do nine to five. Like we know 25 years ago, that wouldn't be possible. That guy would sell drugs or that guy would do something illegal. Now you can have other hustles with other skills. So it makes it a bit more palatable. But you know, if you're in London, you can't afford not to be on your job. This idea of like whatever they're willing to pay you, it will not be enough. Yeah. I don't know anybody that hasn't got two to three things going on. Maybe one of them doesn't make money, but one of them certainly does. One of them's close and one of them will one day. So mm, it's like yeah. everyone's lining themselves up for this experience. And I think also we just stop believing. We don't believe in Britain. Mm. Like I, 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 when I'm on Jeremy Vine, my number one thing to say in my frustration is just like, there's no vision for Britain. And so in that, it means if you even look at yourself and your place in it, you know that you are not the, you know, a leader in masculinity in white Britain. You know you're not. You know you're not a power broker in Britain. And so you think you're like probably somewhere in the middle, middle to bottom as a black man, earning maybe, even if you're earning good money, you know the power you have to do with it. They block you in other ways. So I think, I think many of the time, 
we have to reconcile the fact that this has never been our home and it can't be our home. Not psychologically anyway, we can't get that safety here. The truest thing we can do is look for spaces where we are, have love and affinity. Mm, and we all know we can't go to Jamaica and just be like, yeah, because yeah. you're still English boy, but mm. you can go to other places and build a life for yourself. I went to South Africa, I found so much peace there. Yeah, amazing place. I found peace, I found joy, I found love, I found friendship, I found a mission. I was just like, how are you gonna get me out of it? Like if I didn't have children, I would be there right now. Mm -hmm. Like that's how much peace and joy I had. And that's not to make that country the best thing in the world, but for me, that it healed something. me, like it was yeah. stunning. So yeah, I, I think I advocate that for many men is like, don't just like make money in a different way, go somewhere else, be somewhere else, and then make money in a different way and watch how you don't even care to have a red pill opinion. You don't even care about logging on YouTube to see what Jordan Peterson has to say about the latest thing. It won't even bother you. You'd be so busy just sitting in nature, walking on the beach, putting your hand in some water, pick up a fudging stingray. I don't know what people are doing, but mm. like it's way better than the life that we currently have. Like mm. it's just not a good and, and I think it's interesting because listening to a lot of the conversation, I struggle at times with this because I, I was brought up in London, but I didn't live that life like I was very protected and at the time growing up I really struggled with it because I felt like I was outside of community and it did impact the way I saw like myself both within the black community and within the broader community in in the UK and kind of like that sense of not belonging anywhere and still trying to kind of put people on a pedestal and find that space where I go, okay, this is actually where I fit. And a lot of who I have been um, and, and who made me who I am today has been because of trying to chase that sense of approval or the validation externally that goes, okay, in order to fit in with black people, here is the image I have. And, and at first it was very much a case of because I went to a private school in Catford that just was a microcosm that didn't fit with the wider part of Catford. But in my head it was, we are special, we are different. We're not like those other black people. Mm -hmm. So when I was with them, when I was going to church with those, those people whose sense of value wasn't tied to their grades, I took that as a, well, you're not, you don't have any you sense of them. value. Say, say I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was very judgmental. I had all of that like, imprinting and the and the biases against my own people essentially my own community put in but all that served to do was create that distance with me so that when I did get to uni and suddenly I'm surrounded by other people who are both valuing their grades but have also found that sense of community in their Africanness and in their blackness I struggled to reconcile that I couldn't find my place there either and mm. suddenly the one thing I had seen as my differentiator, my value mm. was no longer special. Mm. And I felt lost for ages. And I think a lot of what you've you've said about that that space where people can just come and be and in all of your flaws and in all your imperfections, like listening to it, there's kind of that that longing within me. Like I'm there trying to reach out and grab for it because yeah, I, I, I resonate with a lot of it and it's been weird trying to navigate it mm. in this space of both being like never being enough of any one particular yeah, thing. yeah that's it like, but, but i i think it's like so i i create i create it in a way that i am the center of my universe 
and I speak to attract my tribe. Mm. That's a part of the reason why, like I have a desire for community also, a really strong one. And it is a very intentional part of my identity. But I don't sit there and look at a community and think I need to be a part of that. I just create one. And so I think like your values from the few things that you said today, tell me that you can create a, 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 a community on being just who you are. There are so many people who have that feeling experience. There is like a mixed race experience where people don't feel black enough, too black. There is a black person, but like I didn't grow up in the thing experience. Mm -hmm. There is like, I'm a father, but I'm not that type of father. Like there's so many different experiences that need collecting. Mm -hmm. And I think too often we look at like the center of it and you might, you know, the online version of certain podcasts who dominate the conversation and they are seen as black podcasts. Yeah. And it's like, well, yes, but no, mm, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if we could ever be mass mass by just being speaking to black for black in our in our tone because it's not center of the consciousness yeah. of blackness all the time. It is a for me, it's a, a north star of what we're trying to create. But like, there are people who would just sit there and be like, "Oh, you see girls, yeah," and then like that's their podcast, yeah, and they they can be number one. And I'm like, I can't measure in those ways. I have to really. One, be able to love that side of us because there is still that part of me, that child, 19 yeah, of year old, that wants to be like, did you see that girl? Like that, that, that's in my head. And, but I also am like, I really want a partner in my life that mm. I can live with, mm. like, like in life with, mm. not just have sex with and hold hands and look at. Yeah. I want to like go through a thing in a day and be like, yo. And I want to be able to find it funny. Do you see what that person said to me? It's mad. Can I show you my email? Yeah. Who, where's, here's my memes. Who do I forward to people on TikTok? <laughs> that's like, you know, that's a part of my love language. And I think when you start to nail down the components of you that are consistent mm -hmm. and authentic to you and speak it into existence, you start attracting someone will just turn up and be like, you know, when you, on, on the podcast, your contribution specifically was my favorite part. Mm. And you know, you know <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that, that, tribe, come. <laughs> it's, it's funny because it, it does happen, but it's like, I don't know, part of it has been the need. Like, I think it's like you said, where there wasn't just that I've done this therapy, I found my solution, tick, done. Mm. It was because I had that thought process as well. I was like, all right, cool, I've done it. Cool, I've reached this extra level of enlightenment and awareness of who I am. Mm. I should be done now. And then having to strip back when something kind of takes you steps back and you have to go again. Like that's been probably part the biggest challenge I've had mm. in going through a therapy journey and learning who I am and trying to be, especially as the roles evolve, like mm. moving from um, being a teenager to being a uni student, to being a professional, to being a partner, mm. to becoming a husband and then father very quickly. Mm. Mm like those two shifts and suddenly losing sight of who I was in that yeah, took a lot of relearning and like restarting. And as someone who's supposed to be a perfectionist, like the, the Nigerian way of if you're <laughs> not the best, you ain't shit. Mm. Basically, if you ain't the best, you ain't shit. That is the message from today's <laughs> podcast. Um, ch ch uh, thank you guys so much. No, I'm uh, not leaving, bro. Uh, <laughs> Look at you trying to be all professional, man. Um, before we go, we wanted to say happy launch day. Please go and get uh, an Ethiopian Ekpadom's new book. I, we, Dom and I are going to uh, the launch. Is it the launch? Not the launch, it's out. It's not the launch, it's out, but we're going, we're going yeah, to the yeah. Q&A on... Friday, uh, 
friend of the pod, has been on twice, amazing Coming speaker, better, better writer, him and Scully. Um, uh, we've been so blessed to have Marvin of Dope Black Dad. You can get the podcast, on a Spotify podcast as well. Uh, we've had Tunde from the Tales from the Plantation podcast. Dom? From this podcast. And from me to all of you, stay well, be blessed. We out.